Episode 53, The Puritans, The Mayflower, and Plymouth Colony. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. All right. The modern world that we're shaping. It begins with this episode. Episodes 1 through 26 were the ancient world. Episodes 27 through 50 were the Middle Ages. And I have absolutely no idea how many episodes it's going to take to get through the modern world. I'm working out that plan as I go. But here are a few things we're going to look at. The Pilgrims. The English Civil War and Oliver Cromwell. The English Restoration. The Enlightenment and the Age of Reason. Colonial dissent in the 13 colonies, the French and Indian Wars, the Boston Tea Party, the Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary War, the Constitution, the French Revolution, Liberté, Equalité, Fraternité, John Adams, Napoleon, Jefferson, and the Louisiana Purchase, the Industrial Revolution, the Monroe Doctrine and the South American Revolutions, Andrew Jackson, the Republic of Texas, Queen Victoria, Manifest Destiny, the Oregon Trail, Yes, you've died of dysentery. The California gold rush. The tensions of the 1850s as the house begins to divide. Abraham Lincoln and the secession of the South. The American Civil War. Yeah, we may linger on that one a while. And the eventual Union victory and reconstruction. And that only takes us to 1870. We still have a lot to go after that, but I guess we'll get there when we get there. So much for a short walk. But all of this is part of the modern era, and it all makes a difference in the world we live in today. And it all started in 1620. Well, actually, we need to go back a little bit before that. In Northern Europe, as the Reformation spread, there were two different types of churches being created. In most countries, the structure of the existing Catholic Church was just changed into a new state church, like the Lutheran churches in Germany or the Anglican Church in England. So in many countries, there was now a new nationwide state church that just kind of took the place of the Catholic Church and took over their buildings in many cases, even though it was now Protestant. And in some of these countries, the Catholic Church also continued to exist. But in addition to this, there was also another kind of church being created, which were the small independent congregations that were not part of a larger statewide hierarchy. These independent congregations, initially like the Moravians and the Anabaptists, saw themselves as self-governing. Now that's a big, big change from the way the church had been run for nearly 1,200 years, but it's much more like the way the church was run back in the days before Constantine and the Edict of Milan. Small congregations with no real hierarchy or authority over them. From the point of view of these small congregations, this was a good thing. But from the point of view of the existing governments and the state churches, this was a problem. It was a problem because these small congregations could kind of believe anything they wanted to, and they could practice Christianity however they wanted to. You see the problem? In some cases, they really did begin to believe some weird stuff. That's always been the problem with small independent religious structures. They often drift into weird beliefs and weird practices. I mean, that's the problem with freedom in general. Free people do weird stuff sometimes. So my point here is that the existing church and the governmental structures back in the 1500s and 1600s saw these small congregations with suspicion. So 
when Henry VIII took the Anglican Church out of the Roman Catholic Church, he wanted that to be the state church. But there were a lot of people within the church who felt like those reforms didn't go far enough. The Anglican Church was really a lot like the Catholic Church had been in terms of structure and doctrine and practices. And a lot of the people in England had been exposed by this time to the ideas of the Reformation, so they wanted more change. These people at first tried to make change within the Anglican Church, and one of the changes they wanted to make was to have more of an emphasis on the personal purity and actual life practices of everyday believers. They encouraged each person to know and follow the Bible themselves rather than just relying on the church hierarchy to teach and lead them. Because of their emphasis on this kind of personal piety and personal purity, they became known as the Puritans. And pretty soon, the Puritans saw that the Anglican Church didn't want to reform, at least not in the way the Puritans wanted. And they were very vocal about how the Anglican Church was being too much like the Catholics. They wanted the Anglican Church to take out any ceremonies and practices that had been held over from the Catholic Church and that weren't clearly established in the Bible. But of course, this wasn't well received by the Anglican Church hierarchy. The Anglican Church didn't like or even recognize the Puritans in most cases. But despite this, the Puritan movement gained size and prominence, especially in certain parts of the country, including Yorkshire, East Anglia, and also Oxfordshire. And maybe not that weirdly, Puritanism became popular among lawyers. It also became popular among the middle-class merchants, which was a very important and growing social class in the cities. Now, side note here, the growing middle class is what eventually moves Europe out of feudalism, Feudalism defined the Middle Ages, but capitalism is going to define the modern era. We're going to have to come back to that in some other episode. So anyway, the Puritans started having small meetings of like-minded Puritans, which sort of were within the existing church, and they sort of became sub-congregations of the larger church. But these were not well received by the church hierarchy. So then they tried having their own separate congregations, meeting in their own separate buildings. But neither the church nor the English government liked this. In some places, including Yorkshire, there was active persecution of these small congregations. And these separate congregations were threatened by the government with jail, seizure of property, and sometimes even execution. There was one congregation in the Yorkshire town of Scrooby, which rather than being persecuted, decided, hey, we're done with this persecution stuff, and they moved their entire congregation to Holland in 1608. Holland, at the time, had no official state church, and so it allowed people to practice religion basically however they wanted to. So I need to take a few moments here to talk about religious freedom and a concept called liberty of conscience. It's basically the idea that each person should have the right to choose to believe and practice however they want. This is something that we kind of take for granted nowadays, but in 1600, people didn't think that way. People didn't think in terms of liberty of conscience. You should be doing what you want to according to your own conscience, right? It wasn't an established right that everyone felt they had. Even the concept of individual rights wasn't clearly established in the culture of Europe in the 1600s. We're going to have to come back to that when we talk about the Enlightenment. In the Middle Ages, if you lived in a Christian country, you're supposed to believe in Christianity. If you lived in a Muslim country, you're supposed to believe in Islam, at least on paper. 
In reality, of course, people believed all sorts of stuff, but you were at least supposed to believe in the state religion of the day. Nowadays, in our world today, I guess you're supposed to believe in woke progressivism. I don't know. Obviously, there's a tension here. On the one hand, it seems right to give everyone the freedom to believe in what they want to, but on the other hand, doing that does open up a lot of problems. Because not everyone is honestly seeking for the truth or trying to practice religion in a good and wholesome way. Maybe they're seeking the truth from other sources besides the sort of acceptable source according to your culture. Some people just don't care at all about the truth, and they just don't want to do what anyone else says they should do. Opening the door to complete religious freedom prevents the problem of having a state religion that tells everyone what they have to believe that's kind of oppressive. But having complete religious freedom opens the doors to a whole host of other social issues. If you give everyone the freedom to pursue their own religious beliefs, well, some people don't take that seriously, and some people just believe crazy stuff, and some people choose to believe actually evil, destructive stuff, stuff that's not healthy for society, and that when you admit it into your society, it actually causes the destruction and division of your society. It causes a lot of problems. And then on the other hand, though, People will create really harsh, ultra-conservative societies where they force religion on people, and that's oppressive and unhealthy in its own way. So you get this tension between these two sides. If you're responsible for creating and maintaining a society, how do you balance these two things? Back in the 1600s in Europe, giving people religious freedom meant that they were free to practice Christianity in the way they chose. So there was at least some common ground, some sense of shared morals and some shared beliefs. But nowadays, religious freedom means that people are free to believe anything or not believe anything at all, and it's just kind of a free-for-all, and you can believe whatever you want. But in the 1600s, Holland had religious freedom in the sense that you could practice Christianity however you wanted to. So the Puritans from Yorkshire moved their families and their entire congregation to Holland in 1608, where there were already some Puritan congregations. But after a little while in Holland, the Puritans from Yorkshire felt like they were being over-influenced by the permissive culture of Holland. Remember, they're focused on personal purity. And they were also losing their Englishness. So in 1620, the Puritans hired two ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower, to take the entire congregation to the New World and found a colony there. They were led by three men, John Carver, William Brewster, and William Bradford. And they set sail on August 15th in 1620. But the Speedwell was taking on water, so it wasn't safe, so it stopped at Plymouth, England. Some people transferred ships, and some stuff was transferred around. And in the end, about 100 people set sail on the Mayflower, that's way overcrowded, by the way, on September the 16th. I'm going to come back to that voyage in a moment, but I want to spend just a bit of time here talking about what it was that they themselves thought they were doing. At one level, they were just fleeing religious persecution and trying to find a place to practice Christianity in the way that they saw fit without having some larger bureaucracy telling them how they had to do it. But at another level, the Puritans were actively trying to create something new. They were trying to create a whole society where everyone, everyone who was a part of the society were legitimate, serious believers. One of the problems that the Puritans saw in the Anglican Church and earlier in the Catholic Church was that everyone who was part of the country was part of the church. 
What they really objected to is the problem of non-practicing Christians, people who said they were Christians but weren't in any way serious about their faith, about following Jesus. Any drunkard in the street, any swindler, any liar or abuser, any podcaster could just go to church and be considered part of the church. The state church basically included everyone who lived in the state. And the Puritans thought that the church should only be composed of people who were serious about being believers, not just any old non-serious pew-sitter. Now, it might sound kind of small, but to the Puritans, this is a big, big deal. They were following some of John Calvin's ideas about the elect, that is, that only the true believers were the ones that God had chosen, and that this chosenness should show in a person's life, and that that was the real church. And because of this belief, many Puritans felt that they needed to separate themselves from non-believers. In fact, Puritans were often called separatists. They wanted to separate themselves. But it wasn't just a case of wanting to thin the herd. The Puritans saw themselves as creating a whole new society, one that they called the City of God. This idea of a City of God goes all the way back to St. Augustine, who was an early Christian writer, and his book, which was called The City of God, which he wrote in the very early part of the Dark Ages in the late 400s. The basic idea is that you're either helping engage in building God's work, the city of God, or if you're not, well, the subtext is that you're working against God. You're just working for the world. John Calvin also built on this in his teaching and preaching and tried to do this in the city of Geneva with some success, but not entirely. But the Puritans took his idea seriously, especially the ones who were separatists, and the idea of creating a pure, godly society where everyone was fully committed to trying to follow God and do his work, that was a really appealing picture to the Puritan mind. So, besides just fleeing religious persecution, the Puritans saw themselves as working actively to build a new thing, a city of God in the world, a fully committed religious society. That was part of what was going on in their plan to sail to the New World. They felt like they couldn't do that in Holland or England. And one other thing that was going on in their minds, and maybe they weren't even fully aware of, but they were creating a whole new model for how society worked. Something that hadn't really been done in quite a while, and maybe hadn't ever been done. They were going to band together as equals, that's a big thing, as equals, and have everyone share in the responsibility of creating a society together. And well, the men at least, they weren't at the stage yet of actively including the women, but they were doing what they could to include families as part of the society. And this would eventually set the stage for women being considered equals. But all the men on the Mayflower who are going to be part of the process of creating this new society, they were all equals. There were no lords who owned the land, no serfs, no servants, no real class distinctions at all. They were all heading to the new world and all responsible for creating a new society there together. It's part of a Christian idea that everyone's the same before God. And it's also a new model for how to create society. But back to their voyage. On the Mayflower, there are about 100 passengers and 30 crew. Like I said, way overcrowded. It's a very small ship if you look at models of it. And they had a lot of luggage and supplies. Their trip across the Atlantic was particularly awful, and it took 10 weeks, which was longer than they had expected, and they experienced several rough storms. But on November 19th, they sighted Cape Cod. Now, this is north of where they were trying to land. They were trying to land at the mouth of the Hudson, which is farther south. It's where New York City is now. 
So they spent several days trying to sail south, but the winds and the currents were against them. So on November 21st, they just dropped anchor there off of Cape Cod and decided to explore that area. Now, they had a bit of a problem because their actual charter from the king said that their settlement was to be at the mouth of the Hudson River. They were trying to displace the Dutch that were already there. Um, but they couldn't get there due to the weather and the state of the ship that was in at this point after all the storms. So they decided to just go ahead and settle where they were somewhere around Cape Cod. But because they didn't actually have a clear charter to this land, they decided together to make an agreement amongst themselves that they would create a legal society and use this agreement amongst themselves as a way to justify their claim to this different spot. So the passengers and some of the crew wrote up and then signed an agreement, which we know today as the Mayflower Compact. Again, in the moment, it was a small thing they did, just signing an agreement to live and work together. But when you look back at it, it was of enormous historical significance. It was like Luther nailing the 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg or Gutenberg, putting together a working printing press for the first time. So here's what the Mayflower Compact says. In the name of God, amen. We, whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord, King James, by the grace of God of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King and Defender of the Faith, etc., have undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. Do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another covenant and combine ourselves together in a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. And by virtue hereof, to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, and constitution and offices from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony, unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. That's one long sentence. It goes on. In witness whereof we have hereunder subscribed our names at Cape Cod the 11th of November in the year of the reign of our sovereign lord, King James of England, France and Ireland, the 18th, and of Scotland, the 54th, Anno Domini, 1620. And then nearly all the passengers signed this document. The key phrase used in this document is this, we covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic, that's important, for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid and by virtue hereof, we enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitution, and offices from time to time that shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony. And then, this is important, unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. They were agreeing together, covenanting together to create a government and to all participate in it and abide by it. And then they all signed it. Well, there were a few that didn't, which I respect. They were separatists at heart, after all. But the first person who signed was John Carver, who had been their most prominent member and one of the people who put up the most money for the trip. And he would become their first governor. The second signer was William Bradford, who would become the second governor of the colony after John Carver died in 1621. Quick side note, I'm in some distant way, related to William Bradford, so I've got a bit of a soft spot for him as a historical character, 
and also for the Puritan colonists. Bradford would go on to be the governor of the colony several times during his life. Bradford would also write an important history of the colony called On Plymouth Plantation. It's in that book that the Puritans are first called pilgrims. So pilgrims refers to the specific group of Puritans that came over on the Mayflower. But there were other Puritans who came at other times. And in the broader sense of the word pilgrim, that is people who go on a journey for religious reasons, those other Puritans were technically pilgrims too. But in American history, when we're talking about the pilgrims, which we talk about every year around Thanksgiving, we're talking about the Puritans on the Mayflower and Plymouth Colony. I'm going to come back to Thanksgiving here in a minute. Anyway, in addition to his book on Plymouth Plantation, Bradford also helped write a pamphlet that was circulated back in England that encouraged other new settlers to come to Plymouth. Bradford would end up spending the rest of his life in the colony. His first wife died the first year, but he remarried later to a woman named Alice Southworth a few weeks after she arrived in Plymouth in 1623. They had three kids together and 18 grandchildren. William Bradford lived until 1657 and Alice until 1670. They are both buried in Burial Hill, which is just outside of Plymouth. So he was kind of a big deal in terms of governing the colony and producing new colonists. Anyway, William Bradford and the other Puritans and the crew signed the compact, which was kind of an amazing little document. They had agreed that they were going to make a functioning society for themselves, including creating laws and offices, and they all pledged their submission and obedience to that society. They were taking responsibility for their own government. And like I said, they were all equal in that task, at least the men were. They were planning on creating a Bible-based society, an attempt at creating the city of God. So before they even started, they signed an agreement that they would all work together on this project. After signing the compact, they spent several days exploring Cape Cod, trying to decide where to build the settlement. On December 18th, they landed on what is now called Plymouth Rock, and they discovered there the remains of an Indian settlement. It had been a village of the Patuxet tribe, which is a sub-tribe of the Wampanoags, but now it was abandoned, probably because the inhabitants had died from some disease. They might have caught a European disease from an English fisherman who had been in the area, or perhaps from French fur traders from the north. But in any case, the village was abandoned, and there was some land that had already been cleared for farming. On December 25th, 1620, yes, Christmas Day, the passengers decided that this was where they would build their settlement. For several months, they lived on the ship while they built their houses in the settlement. That winter, the colonists really struggled, and many of them died from diseases, including William Bradford's first wife, Dorothy. Almost half the passengers and several of the crew died that winter. In March, though, they finally completely disembarked from the Mayflower and settled for good in the new village, which they christened New Plymouth. And that got shortened just eventually to Plymouth. In April, the Mayflower itself sailed back to England, getting there in half the time it had taken them to come across on the first leg. And in the spring, the new Plymouth colony began planting corn and beans and some grains, and they began to hunt more in the woods. There had been some meetings with the local Indian tribes, and some of those were peaceful, but some were threatening as well. The colony elected Miles Standish as their first militia commander. 
Standish had been a British soldier, but he had come over on the Mayflower as a colonist. He was not, however, a Puritan, though he did sign the Mayflower Compact as part of the colony's government. Standish had helped plan the fortification wall around the colony, and he helped pick the location. In one of their early excursions, the colonists had been attacked by about 30 Indians, and Standish had helped them stay together, stay calm, and not use up all of their ammunition. Eventually, under his guidance, they completed the fort. Standish's wife also died that first winter, but apparently Standish never fell ill himself. Bradford, in his book, gives Standish credit for taking care of all the sick people in the camp. Despite the occasional confrontations with the local tribes, they also had some positive encounters with them. The colonists signed a treaty with the local Poconocet tribe, agreeing to defend them and for them to help defend the colony. They were mostly defending each other from the Massachusetts tribe as well as the Narragansett tribe. Standish himself became friends with two of the local Indians. One was named Squanto and the other named Habamock. These Indians became guides for the colonists and also taught them things like how to plant stuff. And apparently Standish and Habamock became friends and stayed friends the rest of their lives. And when Habamock got old, he actually moved into Standish's house. Squanto taught the colonists to fertilize the soil with dried fish before planting, and he was also one of their interpreters. Now, Squanto himself lived a very interesting life. He had been captured before the pilgrims arrived from that very tribe that had inhabited the area of Plymouth. He was either captured by fishermen or slave traders, it's not clear, but he was brought first to England, then he was brought to Spain. Then he managed to escape from Spain with the help of the Catholic Church and get back to England. There, in England, he learned English. And it seems like he traveled with the English to at least Newfoundland and Maine. He may have made as many as six journeys across the Atlantic. But when he got back to his village where he was from, where Plymouth Colony was now standing, he discovered that he was the only survivor from his village. And so he became a crucial resource for the colony. Over the summer of 1621, Standish helped the colony sign another peace treaty, this time with the larger and more powerful Wampanoag tribe and their chief, Massasoit. This basically brought the colonists peace with the Indians for a good while, and also the Indians started to provide help to the colonists with their farming and their hunting. Now, part of the story here is that many, many of the local Indian tribes had been decimated by diseases in the last 100 years. I mentioned this back in episode 42, which was the New World and the Spanish Colonies. The Europeans brought European diseases, and these diseases spread rapidly across the New World. Some modern estimates have said that as many as 75% of the native population died off in the 1500s and the 1600s. So by the time the pilgrims arrived in 1620, there were a lot of abandoned villages and a lot of somewhat empty land. So it made sense from the Indian perspective to help these new settlers because the settlers had things like guns and swords and other metal tools which made them dangerous as enemies but possibly useful as allies. But in addition to peace, all the Indians had to trade for these things that the settlers had was their own expertise in living, farming, and navigating the new world. So the Indian tribes in some cases made peace with the settlers. After a relatively successful spring and summer, by autumn, Plymouth Colony had its first harvest, thanks to the help of the Indians. In October of 1621, 
The remaining colonists, there were 44 of them, they held a feast and they invited the Wampanoags. Massasoit, the chief, and about 80 of his people came to the feast where they ate fish, venison, field birds, including turkey, and cornbread. It was the first Thanksgiving. There's no mention of cranberry jam from a can, though. So this is the beginning of the Thanksgiving tradition, and it was a time for the colonists of giving thanks to God for having provided for the colony after a really rough winter. They had an even bigger Thanksgiving celebration two years later, after the end of a long, long summer drought. But it wasn't until 1863 that Thanksgiving became declared an official holiday. President Lincoln, in the middle of the Civil War, declared a day of Thanksgiving for God's blessings in November. And this one stuck. And so now we celebrate Thanksgiving the second to last Thursday of November. It's worth saying here that there are still some Wampanoag Indians that live in the United States, and they don't see Thanksgiving as a happy thing to celebrate, but instead they kind of see it as the beginning of the end for them. And in a way, they're right, although Columbus's landing in 1492 is really the beginning of the end. At least the beginning of a very big change. As I said back in episode 42, Conquering new lands and taking them over was just part of the way things were in the Middle Ages in the ancient world, and that's just what you did. It's what the Indian tribes did to each other as well, and in this case, the Indian tribes met a group that was very successful at conquering and taking things over. So, in a sense, it was the beginning of the end for them. This idea that you shouldn't conquer and destroy your enemies and take their land and take their stuff, that's a modern era idea that comes from the Enlightenment. It's, it's in the Enlightenment that people really began to talk about the inalienable rights that we all have as humans. Now there's hints of this in what the Puritans did by sailing to America and trying to create a new society. But next episode, we're going to take a much closer look at the birth of these ideas and the real intellectual beginning of the modern era. Join us next episode as we look at the beginning of the Enlightenment.